I have a mole in my backyard. Well, that's a good question. I don't think our president wanted to catch Osama bin Laden any more than I want that mole brought to justice. Once before, I had a mole not too long ago, and I hired a man out of the phone book called the Mole Ranger. Talked to him on the phone, told him my problem. I said, the little mole hills are here and here and here. He said, okay, 25 bucks a mole. And by the way, if you think you can catch a mole, I will pay you 25 bucks. I got a bill in the mail, said he'd caught a mole. I, he said he'd brought the trap. He said he'd caught the mole. I took his word for it, sent him a check. Now I have another mole. So either, either he didn't catch a mole, or that mole was just the front man for a terrorist mole organization. <laughs> I wouldn't mind if moles lived in my yard. I'm an animal lover. I have all the moles you want. Just don't mess up my lawn. You see, when the mole is underground, he's fine. But when he messes up my lawn, he is not fine. Sin, as God teaches us, exists on two levels. The first level is the fact that God says certain things are right and certain things are wrong. But the second level is the level of impact. Sin is harmful. It's not just a matter of, oh, God said it's wrong, so it's wrong. But sin is harmful in its impact. And as such, we have to be ruthless in rooting it out of our lives. Last week, as we, be, as we continued to look at communication as a Christian, we understood that uncontrolled anger is wrong because we are to act like God in letting our anger motivate us, but to control it so that it is acted out righteously. Uncontrolled anger harms relationships. Today we're going to continue that theme of getting rid of harmful communication, which God communicates to us at length in Ephesians 4 and 5. And we're going to follow along here. Starting in Ephesians 4.17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind. The word Gentile is often in the New Testament a synonym for somebody who is not a believer in Christ or a non-Christian. He said, you should no longer live your life like the non-Christian world. Down to verse 21, if indeed you have heard him, heard Christ, and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Chapter 5. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." The first thing that we need to understand today as we continue to talk about communication is this. Communication must not be harmful. Look at chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Now, when we think of corrupt words, we often think of of cursing or that sort of thing. And we're going to get to that in a moment. And certainly that's part of it. But the chief thing that he's talking about in verse 29 is the difference between communication that is harmful and communication that is helpful. The word for corrupt, or the the NIV translates this unwholesome, the word refers to something that is corrupt or foul like old food that decays. It was used of rotten fruit, vegetables, and other spoiled food. When do you clean your refrigerator? (laughs) The word corrupt is talking about that. Okay? That's the primary concept. In other words, there are things that are that can come out of our mouth that are rotten and decaying and tearing down, or, and we'll talk about this next week, he says things that are good for necessary edification. The word edification means to build up. You're either building up with your words or tearing down with your words. God says that your words can be just as bad as rotten food. Your communication is either hurtful or helpful. There's no middle ground. Do you notice that? Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. There's not a middle ground where we say, well, this is kind of bad or a little bad or this is not too bad. He says it's either hurtful or it's helpful. There's no exceptions here because we're just talking like everyone else talks. There's no compensation that allows this area of sin on account of all the other good ways that you live. Your communication is either harmful or helpful. And the first step toward righteous communication is to ask yourself this question. Is my communication godly or ungodly? To actually stop and think and evaluate. Is it godly or is it ungodly? In order to know what we need to in order to do what we need to know is how God defines harmful, harmful communication. And the first one that we looked at a couple of weeks ago was in verse 25. Lying is a harmful form of, or a corrupt form of communication, verse 25. And then uh, we looked last week at verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And just to review, um, The broad category here is uncontrolled anger, communication that comes from uncontrolled anger. The word bitterness means something that is cutting or piercing. 
when we communicate out of a heart that is unforgiving, it cuts and pierces people. The word wrath means the internal boiling rage. The anger refers to the display of anger on the outside. The word clamor means yelling or just talking and talking and talking and not giving up. The evil speaking is the word blasphemy means anything that is purposefully hurtful. And then the word malice, which means any kind of moral evil. And if you weren't here last week, you can, you can get the rest of this sermon uh, online, obviously, and listen to that. But I just say this by way of review of the category of uncontrolled anger, because we're going to add two categories to this. When we think about what is corrupt communication, the first category is uncontrolled anger. The second category is obscenity. Obscenity. Our communication must not be obscene. Look at Ephesians 5, where we just read a minute ago. Walk in love, verse 2. As Christ loved us, but, verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. God defines what is right in terms of sexual morality as well as what is wrong. And here's what is right. Could somebody go and close the doors uh, going down? uh, Because uh, just close the, there we go. Somebody is, somebody is, is having a great time downstairs, but uh, at least one of us is being distracted by it. Um, yeah, what's that? Clamoring. clamoring. That was definitely clamoring, what I was hearing, yes. Yes. I was glad to teach a new word to some of you last week, uh, clamoring. Now you know what it is. Here's what God says is right about sexuality, and it's important to understand that God is not against sexuality. God created sexuality. But God also created the way in which it is to be expressed, and here it is. Marriage is honorable, and, um, and the bed is undefiled. It is not sinful. It is a righteous thing. But the contrast, we define the word fornication in contrast to the first phrase. Fornication and adulterers God will judge. The word fornication means uh, any kind of sexual sin. When it's used in the sense of this verse right here, it means any kind of sexual sin. Now, God also uses other words about sexual sin, like he does here with the word adulterer. Obviously, adultery is when somebody who is married has sexual activity outside of marriage. And that is, you know, that's a good, that's an important definition. God uses several other words to define sinful sexual activity throughout the Bible. But the, the, the thing that is right and the test that we should always apply is this first phrase. Marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. If you want to know what's wrong, just define what is right. And so that also laps over then into our communication. In Ephesians 5, he says, fornication and uncleanness should not even be named among you. Again, this broad word for sexual sin, and then the the phrase, all uncleanness. God is amazingly aware of human nature. Human nature always raises up this way. Well, now I know you said this was wrong, but what about this? Do you remember? It depends on what the definition of is is. 
of a famous sexual sinner, the governor of California appears to have followed in his footsteps. And some of the things that I heard about him seemed to say that he was sort of saying, well, this kind of activity, that's not really sex. This is, and so I'm married, so I can't do this with other people, but I can do that with other people. Fornication and all uncleanness. He says, let it not even be named among you. Don't try to split the hairs and say what's right and what's wrong. It's wrong. But then he goes on in Ephesians 5 to bring it into our communication. Verse 3 says, fornication and uncleanness, let it not be named among you. Verse 4, neither filthiness. Neither filthiness. The word filthiness means something that is disgrading, degrading or disgraceful, and it comes from the same word as that is translated shameful. Look at verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Filthiness, a word or an action that is disgraceful or degrading. And then the word foolish talking in verse 4. Neither foolishness, neither filthiness nor foolish talking. The word for fool in the New Testament is moron. One of the categories of unacceptable jokes is moron jokes. When I was a kid, we always told moron jokes, and all it meant was a stupid person. Of course, now in our, in our more sensitive uh, maturity, we understand that it's not, fun to make, it's not fun to make fun of people who are mentally deficient. But the word moron is there. The essence of foolishness in God's eyes is the disbelief in God. The essence of foolishness is not to believe in God. Go back to the Old Testament. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That is the essence of it. And so we say, well, what does that mean when it comes to talking? It means any speech that is devoid of the influence of God. How about if I really push you and say, when something good happens, do you say, that was lucky? Do you realize that that is a statement devoid of the presence of God? Because what you've just said is, in terms of random chance, that was a really great thing that just happened to me. And you've totally stepped back from God. And when you could have said, thank you, God, that's a wonderful thing you just allowed to happen to me. Foolish talking is talking that is devoid of the influence of God. And we would go on to say that foolish talking is then is any speech, any communication that makes light of sin. Oh, ha, 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 look at that sin. And then the word coarse jesting. The word coarse jesting, the literal translation would be something like this, to turn well, to turn easily. It seems to be referring to the ability to turn normal conversation into something sinful. 
And I think a verse like this kind of summarizes it. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. And as we would say in common, sometimes we'd say, you have a dirty mind, because they took some little conversation and turned it into something that was unrighteous. The command is strengthened even here. Now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Again, the filthy part, talking about things that are unrighteous, that are degrading, that are sinful. Let me give you a couple of concepts about communication. You could call it a rule, but it's not a rule for you unless God would make it a rule for you. This is an application of all of this stuff. Righteous sexual talk can only occur in the same venue as righteous sexual activity. Righteous sexual talk can only happen in the same venue as righteous sexual activity. And the venue that is righteous is what? Marriage. Okay. So is it righteous for a husband and wife to talk about intimate things? Yes, it is. Even that should be done carefully. Obviously, that's not an excuse to use, to use obscene language and so on. Another rule might be this. Husbands and wives should not be talking about their intimacy to others except in the strictest sense of seeking help for a genuine problem. God is very gracious in the way he talks about sexuality. There are, t- there are some places where he is very frank, but he's very gracious most of the time. And he says we should not be communicating in a sexual manner. When we do, it's obscene. It's not for public consumption. I don't need to put a list of words on the board to talk about things. I bought a book one time. It was about the forming of SEAL Team 6, the very SEAL team that uh, some 30 or 40 years later uh, went, to, uh, went to Pakistan here recently. Not the same people, obviously. But the man who formed SEAL Team 6 was a Navy, uh, Navy fighter in Vietnam, and he was given the task of forming this counter-terrorist unit. And uh, I ordered the book because I heard the guy talk on the radio. And I thought, wow, that sounds interesting. So I, I had to order the book, so you know, so I went to pick the book up and I paid my money as I'm taking the book, the fellow handing it to me said, I learned some new ways to cuss by reading that book. I went, Oh, that's really great. You know what the phrase cuss like a sailor means? What it actually means is taking everyday words and stringing them together in a way that they are obscene. It's not just about using the classic words that we call obscene. Our communication is not supposed to be obscene. It is supposed to be upbuilding. There's another category of things, of, of communication issues that we've got to examine in terms of what is harmful. Uncontrolled anger is harmful. Obscenity is harmful. And also profanity. 
And I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that obscenity and profanity are two different things, but they are. And, and, uh, and I want to try and define profanity for you and help you understand it because it's also the basis of us, of us understanding what our communication should be today. Uh, if you've been a Christian any length of time, even if you're not a Christian, you might be aware of the Ten Commandments and the Third Commandment, which prohibits taking God's name in vain. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And so we would, we would tend to say, you know, that that really defines profanity. Um, but the word that is translated vain there actually means deceit. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in a deceitful manner. And these words of Christ help us to understand that. Again, you've heard it was said that to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, or by, for it is God's throne, nor of the earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is of the evil one. The, the idea of using the Lord's name in a deceitful manner comes to bear on making a, a, on swearing to tell the truth, if you will. <clears throat> we in our country have this, this formula, which is, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. That's the kind of swearing that's being spoken of here. And in the Old Testament, the command was, don't swear that way falsely. In other words, don't come into court and saying, oh, I swear, put my hand on the Bible, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. And then you lie. And you knew good and well you were going to lie going in. That is a false that is a deceitful use of the name of God. You're using God's name to appear truthful when you're actually not truthful. It would appear that this is what was going on with Peter. When he'd gone out the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. That's what Peter did. Peter said, you know, we don't know exactly what he said, but, you know, by the God of heaven or... Whatever he said, some, some, he swore out an oath to try to prove he was telling the truth, but he was lying. That is the Old Testament sense of taking the Lord's name in vain. Jesus said the best way to avoid this kind of profanity is to be in the habit of simply saying yes or no and doing so honestly. But there's another kind of profanity which is much more common in our society, and it comes out of the, the Greek word in the New Testament for profane, which means literally something you walk on. And the, the Greek word would have been used of the threshold of a house. You know, when you, when you put a door in, you put a piece of wood or metal or something across there to keep the outside out and the inside in, and that's called the threshold. And in Greek, it's the word profane. And it means to, to, to take something and make it, uh, make it low, make it base, make it common. When I say, praise the Lord, or thank God, or when I pray to the Heavenly Father, I don't make His name low, I make His name high. I don't degrade God's name, I elevate His name to its proper place. 
You see, God takes his name seriously. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. So how do you suppose God feels when we use his name as a derogatory exclamation point? And again, I don't need to give you the examples, but that's the way the name of the Lord is used by many people and many times. How do you suppose God feels when his name is used that way? I, I suppose he feels this way. It's not talking specifically about communication, but it's talking about how we think of God in general. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing or something to be walked on, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Do you understand here? He says, in the Old Testament time frame, when they were living under Moses' law, if somebody did something wrong, they died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. They took the law seriously. He says, what do you think God's going to do when somebody tramples the Son of God underfoot? And that's the word that we're talking about. That's profanity in the New Testament. Making God's name something to be walked on. The name of God should be special to us. And so should all other scriptural ideas. Another, another thing that is profane in our vernacular are the words, go to hell. They come from this word right here, accursed. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach to any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him, literally, let him go to hell. That's what it means. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches to any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. The word accursed means to be beyond redemption. And it's reserved by God for those who preach another gospel. So if you want to know what God thinks when those people come to your door trying to get you to believe something else, this is what God thinks. If they're going to cling to that doctrine, let them be beyond redemption. Say, that's pretty harsh. Yeah, that's pretty harsh. God takes his truth seriously. He takes his truth seriously. And so for us to take a word or a phrase that really comes from the Scripture and then to make it common, or to even just talk about the idea of something or someone going into hell as though it's, you know, like telling them to go to Custer or something. Well, I guess actually it is kind of the same thing, isn't it? No. You see, we can take something that's supposed to be special and make it common so easily. And God says, don't do that. 
Why not? A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account in the day of judgment. Boy, there's a verse I don't like. For every idle word that men speak, they will give an account in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. God is saying, now now get the whole picture here. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. That's why God can judge us by our words. Because if we've been born again, excuse me, if we've been born again, we should have a good heart and it should be bringing forth good treasure. But if we don't, there's idle words. Wow. Wow. How do we make our communication righteous? Well, the communication must be consecrated to God. It's possible to communicate, to dedicate your communication to God. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That word let means there is a choice for us to make. There is a choice for us to make. And this verse right here tells me it's possible for me to make that choice. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It is possible for your communication to be redeemed, to be righteous. Why do people use obscenity, profanity, and anger-filled communication? I think this is an important question to ask because it helps us start to see what the solution is. You know, sometimes when we want to change a habit, we we struggle to change the habit, but if we knew what the source is, maybe we would know where we need to attack it. I want to suggest to you three reasons, and and this is just my observation, somewhat based on the Scripture, somewhat based on life, and I hope it will be helpful to you. Why do people use obscenity, profanity, and anger-filled communication? Number one, it's cool. Now, Hopefully not in the body of Christ, it's not cool. I understand that. But out there in the world, it's cool. It's fashionable. It's hip. It's manly. I can remember one time years ago making some kind of exclamation. You know, something happened and I went whoopee or hot dog or whatever I said. And a guy said to me, can't you use real cuss words? And he said it in a tone that clearly indicated to me that he was challenging my manliness. And I thought, wow, that's a great standard. I was in a, uh, I was in a, in a meeting, a group of people kind of milling about, and a fellow was coming around asking people's opinion on a product we were going to use in this organization. And he came to me and... Uh, it, it had to do with, with something that we did. And he said, hey, we're thinking about changing from this product to this product, and here's the one. What do you think about that? And I looked at it and said, yeah, it looks good to me. He went on to the next fellow, and if I was standing over there, this fellow was standing about over here. And he came over to ask the guy the same question, to get the same information, but he did so with profanity. Now, obviously, I'm a preacher, so you're not going to cuss around a preacher. You know, I guess. 
But he was able to ask the question and get the answer without the profanity there. Why the profanity there? The only thing I can figure out is it's manly. It's cool. I, I haven't been in the girls' locker room. I don't know if it's womanly. Uh, you know, I, I would not be surprised to find out that there's somewhat of a mark of strength as a woman to be able to use the, the words that are real. Oftentimes, the people who make movies say, well, we use obscenity and profanity because it's Real. That's the way people talk. That's the way people really are. And we have to show real life in our movies. You know what? That's, that's true. It is real. But so are a lot of other things that we try to keep people from doing. The third one that I think is the most insidious and, and probably the most accurate is this. Why do people use obscenity, profanity, and anger-filled communication? I think they do it because it's powerful, because they think it's powerful. One of the terms about obscenity is the term, the F, what comes after that? The F-bomb. Well, that person dropped the F-bomb. Why don't they call it the F-nice word? It's the F-bomb. Why? Because it's powerful. When you really want to make a point, you drop the F-bomb with a couple of profanities to go with it, and people know you really mean what you're talking about. That's a common thinking with a lot of people. It's powerful. It's powerful. But the question we have to ask is, what does it mean to be consecrated to God? Well, here's what it means to be consecrated. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I really don't doubt that profanity and obscenity and the significant expression of anger gives you status in certain places. I don't doubt that a bit. In fact, one of the criticisms that's leveled at Christian professional athletes is that they don't get, what's the word, animated enough. They don't, you know, it's, because they don't cuss and swear and stamp their feet, people say, well, they don't really care enough. Because the only way they can tell if somebody really cares is if they really let the blue language come out of their mouth. But the question we have to ask is, Am I trying to look powerful and get the approval of the world around me, or am I trying to be the bondservant of Christ? James 4 enlarges on that when it says adulterers and adulteresses. God considers it adultery when you as a believer attach yourself to the world. As terrible, if you can imagine your husband or wife committing adultery, and as terrible as you would think, that's awful, that's terrible. That's the way God thinks when we attach ourselves to the world around us. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred against God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we're using language to get ourselves accepted by somebody other than God... 
then our language is not consecrated to God. Instead of trying to generate worldly power in our communication, what should be our goal? Well, our goal should be meekness. And, and I, hope this, I hope this jars you just a little bit. What is the opposite of worldly communication based in anger, obscenity, and profanity? If I was to say to you, what's the opposite of talking like that? Well, you'd say, not talking like that. <laughs> Here's what I think God would say is the opposite of that language. Gentle communication. Gentle God uses the word meekness and the word gentle almost interchangeably in the New Testament. Look at this description of Christ. When the Pharisees, then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and, a great, great, and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying... Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out. He won't shout and scream, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth his justice to victory." The idea of gentleness, when, when these people sought to destroy him, what might he have done? Maybe let's put it this way. What was he capable of? Well, we have a preview in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest him, and he said, who are you seeking? And they said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And what did he say? I am. And when he said, I am, what happened to them? They all fell down. And they all went, what in the world? Now, that's just a teeny glimpse of what he was capable of. Even that was gentle. But in this situation here, where they're trying to destroy him, and he's doing good, He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will he hear his, they will hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. He sends forth, till he sends forth his victory, his justice to victory. It must be clearly understood, therefore, and I'm quoting from Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words. It must be clearly understood, therefore, that meekness manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer is the fruit of power. The common assumption is that when a man is meek, it is because he cannot help himself. But the Lord was meek because he had the infinite resources of God at his command. Described negatively, meekness is the opposite of self-assertive and self-interest. It is the balance of spirit that is neither elated nor cast down, simply because it is not occupied with self at all. 
Meekness is not weakness or cowardice or ignorance, but is a chosen way of speaking and acting directed by God's truth and resting in God's power to accomplish his will through his word. As a Christian, do I really think I have to muster up some powerful words in order to accomplish God's will in the world? Do I think I have to be powerful? I heard, a, I heard the uh, mother of a man running for Congress. This was back in the heyday of the moral majority. And boy, we're going to rise up and all the Christians are going to take over the government and and uh, this fellow was, you know, running for all he was worth. And his mother said to me, I was at some event where he was, and she said, in these last days, us Christians have to be powerful. If your hope is in your ability to gerrymander power, whether by word or by action, and not in the Lord, you're mistaken. Now, your words that are typically thought of as powerful, may affect some change in the behavior of people around you. You can be angry and bluster and do all you want, and people will cower back and do what you say, but that doesn't mean God's will has been done, and that doesn't mean their hearts have been changed. Meekness is speaking and acting directed by God's truth. And resting in God's power to accomplish his will through his word. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. That's a whole string of words that talks the opposite of human power. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. What is the meekness of wisdom? The meekness is to say, here is God's truth. And then to step back. God's truth is what changes people. God's truth is what protects us. If our goal is to live like Christ, then we need to let God be the power in our conversation. We don't need to shout to dominate a situation. We don't need to clamor to get our way. We can make fun of the kids clamoring all we want, but we do it too. We don't need to seek status by using obscenity or profanity. We don't need to seek relief from our frustrations by cursing those who cause our frustrations. We can be calm and peaceful and speak like Christ and watch God do his work all around us through his power. The following is a quote from Mark Twain. In certain trying circumstances, urgent circumstances, desperate circumstances, profanity furnishes a relief denied even to prayer. 
In certain trying circumstances, urgent circumstances, desperate circumstances, profanity furnishes a relief denied even to prayer. From where does the power in your speech come from? This is what God wants to be true in your life. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God, not of us. You are a limited creation. You can't make things happen. And you know what? God knows that. We have the treasure of Christ in us like a, like a clay pot. So that when things happen, the power may be seen to be God's power, not our power. Will your words show the power of God or just human strength this week? Heavenly Father, help us. Help us not just to think about the normal obscene words and profane words, but to think about angry words and to think about lying words. And help us to commit ourselves to speaking your words and to speaking words in a way that you would and leaving the results to you. Show your power around us as we trust you this week. I pray in Christ's name, amen.